Thank you to our music team. Appreciate you all. What a day it will be when the earth and heavens are completely filled with the glory of God. Until then, we recognize that very glory and we turn now to the scriptures, the height of our worship. So please, if you would, open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1. As we continue our study in the gospel according to Mark, this morning we will look at Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28, and we will see the astonishing authority of Jesus. Last week we saw the the foundation for the ministry of Jesus Christ, the preaching of the gospel of God and what that preaching entailed. Jesus saying that the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of God was at hand, and the right response to the reality of who he was was to repent always and believe always in the gospel that he preached. And now Jesus goes, continuing his ministry, no doubt preaching this very same gospel, and yet we get different aspects of his ministry as he begins it really in Capernaum. If you would please follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, we come to you and we ask for help in understanding your word. We pray, God, that as we now approach the holy ground of the scriptures, you would give us hearts that are ready to receive the nourishment of your word. We pray, God, that you would open our minds and soften our hearts. We pray for good soil so that the seed of your word would fall on it and bear fruit that would bring you much glory. Lord Jesus, as we look at you and we look once again at your authority, no doubt something that, if not everyone here, almost everyone here certainly recognizes We pray for eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that we would understand that this is the very same authority which at the end of your ministry before you ascended back to heaven said was yours. And in that very same authority you sent us into the whole world to make disciples. We understand Lord that we do not have any authority residing in and of ourselves but you have all authority residing in you. And in that authority, you have sent us. We pray, O God, that you would fill us with a sense of your worth and your value, a sense of your authority and your power, not simply so that we would recognize it, but so that we would worship you for it, so that we would respond to you the way that sinners 
who understand who you are, who are saved by your grace, should respond in all-out, heartfelt, pure worship to who you are. We ask, O oh God, that you would help us in our lives to worship you, not just on one day of the week, but every moment of every day as we enjoy the eternal life that you came to give us, Jesus. Tune our hearts to worship you. We understand and we believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so together in one voice we say, Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a phrase that floats around in the military and in law enforcement and perhaps in other settings as well. It's a phrase that communicates what, in those contexts, every leader is supposed to have. Perhaps you're familiar with it. The phrase is command presence. The idea is that a leader, if he or she is to lead is to set a certain tone for the group, for those whom they are tasked to lead. That tone is to be one of respectability. The character of the person is to communicate the very fact that they are worthy to be followed, and yet that tone and the position of command presence is what allows someone to be able to, in a difficult setting, in a perhaps uncontrolled environment allows them to be able to step into that uncontrolled environment and to command control of the environment. It is not an authoritarian idea where it's do this or else, but it carries the very idea that not only should the people listen, but the people actually want to listen because they understand that the one who is leading them, the one who exudes that command presence is one who is worth following. There was no person who ever walked this earth who had a greater command presence than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so as he begins his ministry, and as Mark unfolds for us the beginning of his ministry, as he comes now into the synagogue as the the visiting rabbi to teach that Saturday morning in the synagogue, we see emphasized quite clearly in, in this passage and even continuing on throughout the rest of the gospel according to Mark, what we see highlighted for us and repeated multiple times is the authority of Jesus Christ. Now the reality is in the gospel of Mark already, the spiritual realm has recognized the authority of Jesus Christ. You remember at his baptism, the father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And Jesus saw the Holy Spirit descend upon him like a dove, thus affirming from the good side of the spiritual realm the very authority of Jesus Christ. And then what happened immediately after that? Satan, acknowledging the authority, knowing the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, does his best to knock him off of his mission by tempting him in the wilderness, something that he was not really ultimately responsible for, but you remember it was the Holy Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness. It was a God-ordained temptation that Jesus would endure and endure faithfully. 
And so the spiritual realm in the Gospel of Mark already recognizes the authority of Jesus. And now the physical realm is beginning to get a taste of the authority of Jesus. And so in this passage here, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 21 to 28, as we focus on the authority of Jesus, I want us to, to see that in two parts. First part, Jesus' authority recognized in verses 21 to 24, and then Jesus' authority experienced or expressed. And so first of all, in verses 21 to 24, we read this. And they, speaking, of course, of Jesus and the four men who he has just called into discipleship, who we read Mark's favorite word, immediately, they immediately left everything behind and they followed him. And so five men walk into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Verse 21 provides for us the context of this situation. Mark sort of sets the ball on the tee so that he can then hit a home run with it as he unfolds the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they walk into Capernaum. Capernaum is located, was, it's not called Capernaum anymore, but is located on the northwest edge of the Sea of Galilee. And it was an influential and even a prosperous city. It was located on one of the major Roman roads And it even had a Roman garrison within it. It was an important city. And in fact, we know from historical records that it even had a large port area so that the fishing industry could thrive there. It was where Simon and Andrew, Simon being Peter, not yet named that in the gospel according to Mark yet, but it was where their home was located according to verse 29 of chapter 1, which we'll see next week. And it was actually, according to Mark chapter 2, verse 1, and Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, it was the place that Jesus made his home. So Capernaum is home base for the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the men enter into it, and Mark uses his favorite word here, immediately on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue, and Jesus was teaching What did a good Jew do on the Sabbath, the Sabbath being Saturday, the day of rest and the day of worship for the Jews? What did they do on the Sabbath? They went to synagogue. They gathered together just very much like this. We Christians have taken their practice from the practice of the synagogue gathering. Synagogue itself means the the gathering place or the being gathered together. And so this is not the temple where we are used to the worship of God being centrally located, the place where the sacrifices were offered. This was the synagogue. It was the place where they would normally gather every week, every Sabbath. And it was, according to Luke, it was Jesus' custom to do this because he was a faithful Jew. And so they gather together in this particular synagogue. And this particular synagogue seems to be still available, at least as far as the foundation, even in the findings of Capernaum today. Today there's the ruins of a 4th century synagogue standing where it it is believed that the very synagogue that Jesus entered into is located, at least the foundation of it. So as they 
discovered the ruins of that fourth century synagogue, they continued to, to explore what was underneath it, and they found what they think is the foundation of the very synagogue that is spoken of here in Mark's gospel. In the synagogue, there was, a synagogue was a, a place, a gathering place, almost like a church that was made up of at least 10 of age Jewish males. And so in that society, you were a man when you were 13 years old. How do you like that, guys? You were a man when you were 13 years old, and so a Jewish man simply had to be 13 or older. You had to have 10 of them, and if you met those requirements, then you could have a synagogue in your area. The synagogue did have someone who was known as the official title of the, as the ruler of the synagogue, and yet it was not the ruler's job to be the teacher in the synagogue. The ruler did various other things. He cleaned it. He maintained it. He probably managed the schedule of traveling teachers, but it fell to the laity, to the, non, the non-rulers, to teach in the synagogue. And likely what happened here, perhaps, is that the word of Jesus' preaching about the kingdom of God had spread, and, and perhaps this ruler of the synagogue had invited Jesus to teach. One needed to be invited to teach in the synagogue in order to do that very thing. And so it seems that in the rotation, it was Jesus' turn to teach in the synagogue that day. The normal practice for the synagogue would be to pray, to unroll the scroll, to read the scroll of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. They didn't call it that, but that's what we call it. And then to expound from the scriptures. They would read it and they would teach. And it played a significant role. And you even think of something like the Reformation, where most of the people were illiterate. They could not read, but most of them could hear. And so the way that they would take in the word of God was by going to the synagogue and listening to it being read and then listening to the teaching of it. And that's how they knew their Bibles. And so they walk into the synagogue and this, this provides the context for what we encounter here in this particular setting. Jesus then was teaching. So you think of a setting that looked very similar to what we're doing here today. People were gathered together. Mark doesn't care to tell us how many people because it really doesn't matter how many people. People were gathered together and there was one teacher. The people likely were sitting just like you are. And in those days, most often, as we can see from Jesus' example, the teaching position was a position of of sitting, being seated, And so perhaps Jesus was seated or perhaps he was standing, much like I'm doing. But it's a situation very similar to what's happening right here, right now. And Mark provides this setting for us and this backdrop for us, really to tell us that it was a sort of crazy day in church that day. And so as we're unfolding and we're reading this passage, I just want you to picture something like this, because it's exactly what Mark paints for us. And verse 22 begins to give us a little bit more detail about what's happening here. And it particularly points us to the response of the people to the one who was teaching. Verse 22 says, and they were astonished at his teaching. How did the people respond to the visiting teacher that day? 
How did they respond to the preacher that day? Mark tells us with one word, they were astonished. Astonished, I suppose, is the best that we can do to get at the meaning of that word. But I'm not sure in, a, in an age of hyperbole where everything is awesome, according to Lego. Five people got that. Seven did now. In a world where everything is awesome, we, we sort of lose the weight of words like astonished. The word actually is a compound word, ek pleso, ek meaning out of, pleso meaning to strike. And so Vine's expository commentary says that this word signifies to be exceedingly struck in mind. I think it would be perfectly faithful and perfectly right to translate this as something like, and their minds were blown at his teaching. That's the sense of the word. They were sitting there and they had to pick their jaw up off of the floor. That was the response to the teaching of the teacher that day. This man, whom they knew was originally from Nazareth, but had come to make his home in Capernaum. They had never heard anything like it. In fact, the second half of verse 22 unfolds for us why they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Jesus' teaching carried with it a command presence. Jesus' teaching carried with it an authority that no one listening had ever experienced before. I don't know if you've had this experience, but sometimes you listen to a sermon and there's just something about it that day the word of God just so strikes your heart that after it's over, you're just sort of left sitting in your chair speechless. If you've never experienced that, first of all, I'm sorry. (laughs) But in all honesty, I am sorry because it is one of the most wonderful experiences of the Christian life. To be floored by the word of God, to be awestruck, to have to pick your jaw up off the floor, to have an experience where you're just left there going, whoa, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do right now. This is the way that the people responded because the teaching of Jesus was nothing like they had ever heard. The scribes were the scholars, amongst other things, of the day. If you wanted to get the best teacher known in Israel, you would call a scribe to come and teach you. They were, first of all, literate, they could read, and they could write, which to us is like, well, that's not a big deal. But it was a huge deal in a world where most people could not read and most people could not write. They were the experts in the law. They had studied it over and over again, And yet Jesus' ministry proved that they were more like Satan's experts than God's experts. They were the ones that were given the task of copying by hand the word of 
God. It was an intricate and detailed process. If there were any mistakes made, the whole thing needed to be destroyed and done over again. They had to purify themselves before they would even grab the pen to write down the word of God. It was not just sitting down at your computer and typing. It was a heavenly, heavily involved and highly praised process. If you wanted to get the best teachers of the day, you called in a scribe, and yet the people were astonished because Jesus blew the scribes out of the water. It was the practice of the scribes in this day to more so quote from the tradition of the elders. Various rabbis, for instance, and and history tells us that they would often read long quotations. And if you've ever sat in a sermon where someone chooses to read a very long quotation, then you know exactly what the people felt like. Oh, oh, is he still going? That's what the people felt like. That's not new, by the way. That's been experienced by people listening to other people talk throughout all history. And so it was very boring It involved very tedious listening. Now, they were much better listeners than we are. They don't have the same stimuli that we have that kind of dulls our senses. Combine numb and dull there for a second. Numbs our senses. So they were much better listeners than we were, but the reality is it was hard for them to pay attention to the teaching of the scribes. And yet we see from places like the Sermon on the Mount, how is Jesus' teaching, how did that go forward? We see from the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that Jesus would regularly say is, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Which would have piqued the interest of the people. They would have said, it was a shot across the bow to the religious leaders which is why Jesus made his home base north of Jerusalem and not in Jerusalem. Because when he went into Jerusalem, they killed him for it. And so it was a a teaching that they had never experienced before, something that they had never heard. They were completely blown out of their minds because they had never heard anyone teach with that type of authority. But we understand that the Lord Jesus didn't just teach with authority like anyone else who teaches with authority. It wasn't just that he was maybe loud, though we we really have no idea what his volume level was or what his preaching style was. The authority of Jesus's teaching rests in the authority of Jesus's person. Why did his teaching have authority? Because he's the king. What did he say to the people as we studied last week? What was the foundation for his ministry? He went proclaiming the kingdom of God. And he told the people the kingdom of God is at hand. The king was here. And when the king speaks, no one speaks like him. And so the people respond to his authority. They recognize his authority and their minds are completely blown by the reality of his authority. And then in verse 23, in the middle, it seems, of the teaching of Jesus, as Mark uses his favorite word again, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. 
I asked you to picture a setting like this because this is what was happening when the man with the unclean spirit cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So if you've ever been in a church service before, or perhaps you've seen some of the famous clips on YouTube of someone either standing up or storming the stage and screaming at the preacher, it rattles you if you've ever been in one of those situations before. It rattles you so much so that you respond much like those famous YouTube clips where it takes the security a little while to figure out what's going on and get up there and get the guy down. Because it strikes you and it makes you go, what, what in the world is happening here? So their minds are already blown by his teaching. They're in a sort of state of shock by his teaching. And all of a sudden this guy starts crying out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? which was a Hebrew idiom, which meant something more like, get out of my face, Jesus of Nazareth. We don't have any business together. It was almost as if the the demon was saying, Jesus, this is my synagogue. You get out. I control the teaching around here, Jesus. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees about who their father really was? They thought their father was Abraham. But Jesus tells them in John 8, no, your father is the devil. You see, the major religious teachers of the day in Israel were teaching not the doctrine of God. They were teaching the doctrine of demons. With all their intricate law-keeping regulations and rules... This is exactly why Jesus said they cast onto people a a burden that they themselves are not even willing to bear. And so Jesus is teaching and a man yells out. And and the the conflict here seems to be such that the, the pressure built and built and built. Such that the demon, the unclean spirit who had possessed the man couldn't take it anymore. The piercing light of the Holy One of God so agitated him, so bothered him that he couldn't keep his mouth closed anymore. We've seen already that Jesus has conquered the king of the demons, Satan himself. And now he puts the demonic realm on notice that the king is here and he's not playing around. And so the demon even recognizes who he is, and he shouts out these various expressions. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Which I already explained means something more like, mind your own business. Get out of my face. We have have nothing to do with one another. This is my house. You get out. And then he asks them a question. Have you come to destroy us? Now, there are are at least three possibilities of who the us is. The us could either be the demon, which is what an unclean spirit is, the demon and the man whom he's possessing. It could be that there are multiple unclean spirits in the man, and so the us refers to more than one demon, more than one unclean spirit. But I think the third option is most likely. 
This demon is the first demon to be cast out in the gospel according to Mark. And so this demon stands as a representative of the demonic realm. This demon knows who this man is. And he knows what the mission of the man is. The demon recognizes that Jesus will destroy him. And so he asks him. Essentially, he says, is now the time? Satan knows his Bible. He knows that at the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, there would be a clash between the kingdom of God and the domain of darkness. And this is, I think, exactly why we see so much demonic activity throughout the Gospels, and you see far less in the book of Acts. And then, you don't even have any instructions whatsoever in the Bible on how to deal with demonic activity, except that, of course, to put on the armor of God. The Bible doesn't tell you how to perform an exorcism, because that's not the concern of the people of God. What will get rid of the demon? The son of God himself and the message of his gospel. That is what will get rid of the demon. The very fact that he's an unclean spirit, one of Mark's words that he uses for the demon, does not indicate that he was a demon that needed a shower. He wasn't unclean in that sense. He was unclean in the Old Testament sense of being the exact opposite of God being unfit and unworthy to be in the presence of God. And so you can see then the conflict. God comes to the synagogue that day, and the demon's there. And he's uncomfortable, because he knows he doesn't belong there. He knows he can't approach God in his unclean condition. And yet, he wants nothing to do with God. He hates God to the very core of his being. And so he asked Jesus, have you come to destroy us? The Apostle John tells us in 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. One aspect of the ministry of Jesus Christ was to undo the work of Satan, which takes you all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Although the serpent would bite the heel of the seed of the woman, what would he do to the serpent? He would crush its head. This unclean spirit, this demon, knew that. And he understands that he's only got a limited time to wreak havoc because when this son who paid the penalty for sin on the cross and rose from the grave and ascended back to the father, he knows that that very same son will come back in power and glory. And that the spiritual reality of the kingdom of God right now will one day become the physical reality. That the king will come with all power and that when he establishes his, his 1,000 year reign on the earth, Revelation 20 says that Satan and his minions will be bound and cast away. And at the end of that 1,000 year period, they'll be released to wreak havoc once again and Satan will do his best to gather together an army of human beings against God. Jesus and his saints, but Jesus with the breath of his mouth will annihilate them. And the end will come. This may have been a fight, but it was no fair fight. 
The demon may have been able to possess, to take over, to take control of the man, but he had no authority for the Son of Man. The demon then, just as uh, the demon then recognizes the identity, the true identity of who Jesus is, he says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Now, there's scholars that say that supposedly in those days, if you named the name of someone that expressed power over them, I have no idea if that's true. Sometimes people say things in books and then it gets repeated as if it was true. And then someone later on will write something and discover that actually that thing that was propagated in books is absolutely untrue. But that's not the point of what Mark is even getting at, is it? Perhaps the demon did try to exercise authority over Jesus. But I tend to doubt that. Because the demon knows who Jesus is. And if he knows who Jesus is, that means he knows he has no power over who Jesus is. In his uncleanness, he recognizes the cleanness, the holiness of Jesus and acknowledges that he and he alone is the Holy One of God. And so, so far, in synagogue that day, the people acknowledge the supreme authority of Jesus. They recognize that. The demon recognizes the authority of Jesus and even recognizes the identity of Jesus. But then in verses 25 to 28, as the story unfolds, we see Jesus' authority exercised. So far, everyone there knows who Jesus is. The demons told them who he is. But now it's time for Jesus to exercise his authority. The demon has spoken, and now Jesus will speak. Verse 25 says, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Jesus doesn't have an arguing match with the demon. Jesus doesn't have to go get holy water or a special sort of cross. Jesus doesn't have to do like the other exorcists of the day, which involved incantations and spells of all sorts of things. Likely just other demons manipulating other demons. Jesus simply tells him, shut your mouth and get out of that man. Now, I think, I think in here, even as we think about the exorcisms of Jesus, the casting out of demons of Jesus, I think in here lies some compassion. Jesus understands that that unclean spirit does not belong in that man. And so Jesus says, get out of him. What the king of kings has come to claim as his territory he claims as his territory. I don't know if you realize it or not, but that very same chapter of 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, makes it crystal clear that anyone who is not by faith in the Son of God, a child of God, 
is actually and truly a child of Satan. 1 John 3.10 says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So according to the Bible, there are two classes of people, the children of God and the children of the devil. And John says, by this it is evident. He goes on, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So in the very destruction of the works of the devil, what Jesus does for the sinner when he saves him or her is remove the restraints that Satan has over that person. A person may not be possessed by Satan and yet can still be the possession of Satan. Or as John calls it, a child of Satan. And isn't this what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2? The sons of disobedience, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, who is that? That's the non-Christian. So all human beings are either a child of God, and they're a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ, or they're a child of the devil. And we know that that can look pretty ugly. Think Putin, for instance. But the Bible also tells us that that can look kind of good. After all, does Satan not disguise himself as an angel of light? Think of all those really nice, smiley, false teachers. 1 Timothy chapter 4 tells us that they teach the doctrines of demons. They're influenced by Satan himself. And so a part of what Jesus does when he saves the sinner is he removes their identity. He he reclaims them, not as a child of Satan, not as a child of the devil, but a child of God. He sets the captive free, just as he set this man free from this demon. And in verse 26, the demon responds with the only possible way to respond. He obeys Jesus. He doesn't want to, which I think is indicated by his his convulsing the man and crying out with a loud voice. But he has to. Because when the king gives an authoritative command, it is obeyed. Period. And so Jesus says, get out of him. And he does. He cries out with a loud voice. It was quite the scene. The man falls down, convulses, cries out with a loud voice. Yet Luke tells us of this very same scene in Luke chapter 4 that the spirit did not hurt the man. The man was completely unharmed in the casting out of this spirit. And then the story continues, but not with the man. It goes back to the people. What was happening in the rest of the church service as the people watched? Verse 27 says, and they were all amazed. A synonym to being astonished. They were amazed. They were already astonished. 
And now, in addition to their astonishment, they're amazed. As if they could get even more mind-blown, they hear his teaching and their minds are blown, and then they see his authority exercised, and they're amazed. They're going, what in the world is going on? Which is why they say to one another, it says that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Now what had just happened? Jesus had just commanded an unclean spirit and it came out of him, right? But what do the people put as the main point of emphasis in their amazement? His teaching. It was certainly the exertion of his authority that left them amazed, but the thing that they were most amazed at was not the exertion of his authority, but the place in which his authority resides supremely, his teaching. You see, they understood that the miracles of Jesus, which included exorcism, casting out of demons, they understood that the miracles of Jesus were a testimony to the teaching of Jesus. Such that they recognize and they teach us that the place in which the supreme authority of Jesus rests is not in his miracles, but in his words, in his teaching. And so they're astonished at his teaching and its confirmation by the very fact that he can command unclean spirits and the unclean spirits actually listen to him. And so how did the people respond then? Verse 28 says, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. You get Mark's point, don't you? Jesus was famous just like that. Jesus was trending before trending was a thing. The people left synagogue that day, and what did they do? They talked. They said, you would never believe what happened today. We were just sitting there like we normally do. We were expecting another snorer, but then a new teacher came. You know that guy named Jesus that we saw get baptized a while ago? Yeah, that guy. He was the guest teacher that day. And when he taught us, it was like nothing we have ever heard before. And then guess what happened? Some guy cries out. And it was clear that the guy was possessed by a demon because he was talking crazy. And then, rather than be afraid or step back in any way, Jesus just told the guy to shut up and the demon to come out of him. And it did. You'll never guess. And so they have this response and his fame spread. The authority of Jesus is recognized so that people's minds are blown by his teaching. The authority of Jesus is exercised so that he demonstrates his power over demons. Yet what was their response to all of this? Yes, they spread the news about who he was and what had happened that day. But I ask you, Do we read anything here of anyone responding the way that Jesus said you must respond to the kingdom of God? 
What was the response to the preaching of Jesus supposed to be according to chapter 1, verse 15? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark puts that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry because he wants those words ringing in our ears all throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ, all throughout our lives, that it is Christian and it is right, a right response in recognizing who Jesus is, in following Jesus. It is a right response to be always repenting and always believing in the gospel. And yet we see even from the demon himself, one can rightly recognize the very true identity of who Jesus is and be totally dead in their sins. Who is the first one to recognize the actual identity of Jesus as the Holy One of God? Who is it in the Gospel of Mark? A demon. And this is exactly why James says in James 2, even the demons believe and shudder. The devil knows exactly who Jesus is. The devil knows exactly what Jesus came to do but he doesn't believe a lick of it. Oh, he knows it's fact, but he does not stake his life on that fact. And that's what real belief is. Notice that Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Not just believe the gospel, but take your belief, take your trust and place it into the gospel so that you understand that the only way to be right with God is through Jesus Christ. No one recognized how they were supposed to respond and yet everyone was blown away by Jesus. This is why later on in his ministry, according to Mark chapter 11, verses 20 to 24, Jesus would condemn Capernaum. Listen to his words in, Mark, in Matthew eleven twenty to 24. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. What were they supposed to do? Repent and believe in the gospel. They saw the mighty works of Jesus. They thought, wow, that's cool, but they wouldn't repent. It continues, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. We must understand 
Even as many of us in here rightly recognize the authority of Jesus Christ and rightly submit to that authority, an authority, by the way, we hear every time we read the words of scriptures, this is the word of God. Yet we must understand that it is not enough for someone to be impressed by Jesus. It is not enough for someone to know the actual and real identity of Jesus, but rather one must be always repenting and always believing in the gospel which Jesus preached. That is a real Christian. Even Satan knows that. And so let me just ask you then, why are you here today? Are you here because you rightly know who Jesus is? Or are you here because you love Jesus? Because you not only recognize him as the Holy One of God, but you know him to be the Savior of your sins. The one you need. The one whose righteousness is perfect in light of your completely imperfect righteousness. And so you are always repenting of your sin. And you are always, every moment of every day, believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Understanding and embracing that there is no way to the Father except through the Son. It is striking, striking how easy it is to recognize the authority of Jesus and yet still reject him. It is not enough just to recognize his authority. We must submit to his authority by heeding his very own words to be always repenting and always believing in the gospel.